isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Thank you, Alan, and welcome to the show. For those who don't know me, I'm Fred Paul, and my new show on ADH TV will bring you the most compelling and entertaining views and opinions every Monday to Thursday at 9 p.m. ADH is the fastest growing streaming broadcaster in Australia and the new home for common sense commentary. It's easy to watch us. Simply download the ADH app on your phone Apple TV or other devices from your usual app store. All our content is there live and on demand. You can also listen to our shows on podcast. Just search for ADH TV wherever you stream or download your audio programs. Now, as Alan has been saying for years, the attempts by state and federal governments to control the climate by shutting down energy plants and raising taxes on emissions is nothing short of a national economic suicide note. Well, there are signs now that our governments have finished writing the suicide note and like some grimly depressing introvert, all that's left now is to decide how to commit the act. It's not as if the catastrophic consequences of these policies are not obvious. Across the country, we are placing restrictions on the extraction or use of our abundant supplies of oil, gas, coal, and uranium, while facing the sort of energy shortages not seen in Australia since World War II. For evidence of where this will take us, have a look at Germany, where the shutting down of coal-fired power plants has led to an energy shortage so severe that the elderly will this winter be forced to huddle together in halls repurposed as, wait for it, warming places. Or have a look at Sri Lanka, where cozying up to China and imposing ludicrous organic farming practices, the sort of green fantasies that are also popular here among our new generation of green and teal MPs, has thoroughly destroyed agriculture. And as a result, a country with a population only slightly smaller than Australia's is now facing drastic food shortages and societal collapse. Or even worse, look at the protests in the Netherlands. The farmers there are the most efficient in the world and their tiny nation is the world's second biggest exporter of food. But instead of teaching farmers elsewhere in the world how to produce abundant crops, with limited land, they are being shut down by their government because they use nitrogen fertilizer. 
This is, which is as essential to plant growth as carbon dioxide. The media has largely ignored these protests, just as they mostly ignored the 150,000 farmers who protested in Madrid in Spain back in March. The world is being led by politicians, many of them alumni from the World Economic Forum, who seem determined to seriously restrict food and energy production and punish or imprison anyone who tries to stand in their way. There are, there are few politicians at any level of government in Australia who are even aware that this is happening. Like their counterparts overseas, they are at best self-appointed busybodies looking for non-existent problems to solve and only making things worse, or at worst, they are the puppets of globalists whose plans will, as we can already see, be enormously beneficial for the elite, but not so much for the likes of you and I. Now the world is waiting with bated breath for a plane carrying United States Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to touch down in Taiwan. Pelosi, arguably one of the least useful or intelligent politicians in the world today, has taken it upon herself to visit the island for a series of relatively trivial meetings. The reunification of Taiwan with mainland China is one of the core ambitions of President Xi Jinping. So Pelosi's visit is seen by Beijing as both symbolic and provocative. Unlike the war in Ukraine, if Pelosi's visit sparks an all-out conflict, it will directly and dramatically affect us here in Australia. China has already started courting closer ties with Solomon Islands, a mere 2,000 kilometres off Queensland, as a, as a strategic base. It's done this for good reason. The Solomon Islands are home to Guadalcanal, the island the Japanese took during World War II in the hope of isolating Australia from its much bigger ally, the United States. China no doubt thinks a similar outcome would be a side benefit of strengthening its presence in the archipelago. Australians are about to be reminded, as if any reminder was necessary, that our very existence relies almost completely on our alliance and friendship with the United States. Ever since Prime Minister Paul Keating told the Asia Australia Institute in Brisbane in 1994 that, quote, Australia's economic, strategic and political interests now coalesce in the region around us, unquote, it has been fashionable and in many ways lucrative to see ourselves as part of Asia. But the cultural links in our region are not as strong as those extending across the Pacific, or across Asia to Britain for that matter, and if push comes to shove, we might find ourselves more isolated than ever. That's the alarming news, but there is actually a silver lining here. A war with China would be catastrophic, of course, but there are also reasons to not be so intimidated by China's bullying. Firstly, it's clear that our impression of the formidability of China is somewhat exaggerated. That's not to say that the Chinese Communist Party isn't building a massive military, it is. But we should take some of it with a pinch of salt. 
Whenever you see reports about Chinese militarism or the glorious leadership of President Xi Jinping, it's always accompanied by the same footage. You know the stuff. Massive aircraft carriers sailing in formation through the South China Sea, robotic Chinese soldiers marching in precise formation, their faces hardened against an imaginary foe, huge missiles being paraded before a phalanx of generals, and, of course, President Xi riding around in an open-top limousine wearing the expression of a man who is bored with peace and on whose order World War III could begin at any minute. But this footage was supplied by the CCP, and they didn't do it to see if they could beat PewDiePie on YouTube views. It was intended to scare us, and it has. But contrary to the impression this footage makes, there are plenty of signs that China is neither as unified nor as frightening as we have been led to believe. Last month, we saw one of the biggest protests in China in years, when hundreds of frustrated and frankly ripped off bank customers lost, in some cases, their life savings when the bank's owner did a runner with their deposits. The protesters remained on the steps of the bank even while some were dragged away by government thugs and were only dispersed when the army's tanks rolled in. Other signals of internal unrest in China are also starting to emerge. Home buyers are refusing to pay the, re the mortgage repayments on, on apartments they bought off the plan, but, but which will never be completed because their builders had also done a runner. The mortgages affected by this boycott total about $300 billion, which is not big enough to break the banks, but it is big enough to reveal a dysfunctional side of China that the CCP would rather we didn't know about. Xi's strategy for coping with COVID is also causing uncharacteristic unrest. The harshest recent lockdown was in Shanghai in March and April. Again, images of protests, resistance and police brutality were leaked out. These protests are significant, are significant to Xi because he sees himself as the moral inspiration for the nation. As the brilliant Australian Sinologist, the late Pierre Rickmans, who wrote under the pseudonym of Simon Lees, said, quote, the ultimate asset of the Chinese state is the trust of the people in their rulers. If that trust is lost, the country is doomed." Unquote. The chatter on social, Chinese social media sites suggests that the government has an army of hardline nationalists su supporting it. But again, these sites are closely scrutinised by the government, which makes expressions of dissent dangerous. The footage we often see of steely Chinese soldiers might also be less than accurate thanks to the one-child policy that was enforced in China from 1980 to 2015. This policy created generations of young Chinese who are irreplaceably precious to their parents and are unlikely to be encouraged to march off to war. Not that they would want to anyway. Single children tend to be more self-centred and timid than, than those with siblings, which makes them poor soldiers. The prosperity from the recent boom in technology and manufacturing 
has also attracted the best and brightest young people away from careers in the Chinese military. This is causing a dilemma for the military, which has plenty of sophisticated equipment, but hasn't been to war since Vietnam in 1979. Now, none of this should diminish the horrifying prospect of war, but it's useful to remember that unlike Australia and the US, the government in China doesn't represent the people, and there is no guarantee that the Chinese people share their government's enthusiasm for an all-out war. And now to today's Woke Watch. There are two analogies we use whenever we want to pr prove something is beyond doubt. Does a bear defecate in the woods? And is the Pope a Catholic? Well, from now on, we only have the bear's outdoor ablutions as a measure of veracity because after the Pope's visit to Canada last week, his Catholic credentials, or what remained of them, are almost non-existent. The Pope was there to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in, according to the BBC, quote, the oppression, mistreatment, and cultural genocide of indigenous people in Canada, unquote. The most famous of these was at a boarding school for indigenous kids in Kamloops in British Columbia. You'll recall that last year, an archeologist called Sarah Bolio used ground penetrating radar to supposedly find the bodies of up to 215 children at the school. But her claims came with a caveat. She said, quote, we can never say definitely they are human remains. We have to say they are probable until one excavates, unquote. Well, this was all the world's media needed as further evidence of the Catholic Church's sinister history of raping and killing kids in colonial outposts. The graves were widely reported as irrefutable fact. This footage shot at the school in the 1960s reveals the place to be slightly happier than the religious hellhole imagined by journalists in far-flung newsrooms. But the Pope fell for the media narrative hook, line and sinker. He said, quote, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous people. Now, papal apologies are relatively new. They only began under Pope John Paul in 2000. But the current Pope has markedly increased the apologies, which somehow only ever fit the woke narrative. And there is nothing the woke establishment loves more than someone begging for forgiveness. Predictably, this latest apology had the usual response. As the Washington Post reported, quote, the Canadian gover government made clear that Pope Francis's apology to indigenous peoples for abuses in the churches in the country's church-run residential schools didn't go far enough, unquote. Of course it didn't. The Pope should have learned by now that the woke that to the woke, an apology is never good enough. In most cases, it simply opens the door to reparations and compensations for crimes that can seldom be proved, but can easily be exaggerated. 
Now, one of the benefits of signing up to the climate cult is the moral clarity it provides. The threats to our precious planet are easily identified and vilified, from the plastic straws we throw away after a single use, to the businesses that constantly produce new goods and the people who mindlessly consume them. The biggest and most fundamental offender, however, is the oil industry. It extracts resources from the earth and turns them into fuel that gets burnt in cars or forms the basis of disposable plastic products. An open and shut case of environmental villainy, right? The same clarity applies to the recent so-called pandemic. Vaccinated mask wearers are angelic and socially responsible. Unjabbed non-compliers are selfish murderers who deserve to die. But what happens when these two simplistic worldviews collide? Our regular Tuesday guest, Alexandra Marshall, has discovered a surprising link between big climate and big pharma, and she joins me tonight to discuss it. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here. Now, firstly, is there a correlation between people who sign up to the collective COVID response, especially in the form of vaccines, and people who are inclined to think that the world is about to end in a climate catastrophe caused by human activity? Well, look, if they're sticking themselves to the nearest piece of tarmac, you can almost be certain they're going to be wearing a mask and holding an iPhone of some sort to make sure that it's all on camera. So yes, they are the same group of people by and large. The, uh, the screaming school children who are sure the world is going to end with a climate apocalypse also think it's going to end with some kind of medical apocalypse. It's almost as if they have nothing better to do and so they're chasing meaning in their life by attaching themselves to these uh, apocalypses. And it's a sort of the same thing that we felt when you were looking toward the moon landing, this collective uh, amazement that something big is happening. Well, that's being misused by these globalist powers to trick kids into thinking they're literally saving the world when really they're helping to destroy parts of it. So, okay then, climate catastrophists and COVID alarmists are often the same people. But your research, which you recently published in The Spectator Australia, has found some disturbing contradictions here. Alexandra, is the pharmaceutical industry that the left became so besotted by during the pandemic, is it reliant on the oil industry and is it one of the world's leading polluters? Well, most people are not aware that Big Pharma is actually the world's largest fossil fuel user and polluter. They, they outstrip the car manufacturing industry by about 55%. And so if they were to attain so-called net zero goals, even the Guardian admits they'd have to cut their emissions by 65%, which isn't going to be happening anytime soon. And it's not just the powering of the industry that's using fossil fuels, or the transport, which is a major part of the health industry. It's the petrochemicals, where almost every product that comes out of pharmaceutical companies is based on petroleum, whether it be the plastics or the PPE or the chemicals themselves that they use to make things like vaccines. It is a petrochemical heavy industry. So yes, it's a massive hypocrisy where you've got people saying, let's shut down fossil fuels, but not considering what's going to happen to their healthcare industry if they do that. Well, Alexandra, I know you're not one of these leftists yourself. I'm pretty sure of that. But do you have any idea how such people are able to hold these contradictory ideas at the same time? 
Well, it's easy to hold two ideas when you're not even sure that they're contradictory. So this hasn't even been discussed in mainstream media. The last time anyone talked about the petroleum industry and pharmaceuticals was when peak petroleum was a thing that people were concerned about after the oil embargo of 1973. Now, there are a few serious papers done at that time which have not been widely circulated and not been widely discussed, certainly not in Australia. And after that, the only people who are discussing it are a couple of, oh, we'll find a solution kind of papers at the World Economic Forum. So our best guess is that they're going to reallocate the fossil fuel industries to big pharma at increased costs, which the taxpayer will pick up. So healthcare will rise, but no one wants to talk about it and certainly not Anthony Albanese. Well, given given pharmaceutical companies are so reliant on petroleum, What would happen to the price and availability of medicine if the green elites got their way and phased out fossil fuels? This is a guess. So they're not even sure. So as I said, no one's done a serious research paper on this for more than 20 years. But they presume that rarer sources of fossil fuels will cause prices to increase. By default, that would be a natural uh, ramification. However, in order to keep uh, the profits of big pharma up, they'll usually make the government, so the taxpayer, foot the increased bill. So somewhere along the line, our taxes are going to be raised to pay for this virtual signaling closing of the fossil fuel industry. But one thing that's not going to happen is they're not going to cut the fossil, the uh, big farmers' reliance on fossil fuels. They're going to take it out of farmers, so starve people and protect the medical industry. From big farmer to small farmer, who, who would have guessed, hey? Very well done. Okay. Let's shift to another topic. Last night, we showed US Vice President Kamala Harris defining her pronouns before a meeting. And yesterday, Greens MP Lydia Thorpe raised a black power salute and called the Queen a, co- a colonizer in the Australian Senate. Alexandra, what do you think of this? Is this democracy in action or is it, call me paranoid, the death of democracy? What it is the death of is our race blind, equal constitutional monarchy and capitalist democracy and the beginning of a Marxist-Leninist race-based power system. So it may still be a democracy of sorts, but it certainly won't be one of equality or one that values the individual over their ethnicity. Well, speaking of, speaking of democracy then, US President Joe Biden has announced the assassination of al-Qaeda boss Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now, call me cynical, Alexandra, but was this death timed to distract the American public from Joe Biden's deplorable performance as president? Well, you could easily be accused of being a little bit cynical there, but there are plenty of desert-dwelling Islamists that you can go off and pick off at the opportune moment. So you might be onto something there. Okay, well, thanks, thanks, Alexander. And finally, before you go, look, the Hobart City Council says there are too many statues of white men in the city. On balance, have white men made a good or bad contribution to our society? And should we, should we be trying to cancel them? Well, the left's use of white as if it were some kind of uh, specific nationality is lazy. The white, uh, when they use white, what they mean is a vast variety of ethnicities in Europe who have contributed a huge amount of knowledge uh, to science, mathematics, art, history, 
agriculture, everything. And they've done that because it's their system of work ethic and their cherishing of knowledge above dogma that has brought forward so many of our famous learnings. And yes, they have contributed on balance far more than they have taken away. It brings us back to what we said earlier. These are contradictory thoughts. I mean, how can you live in a thriving Western liberal democracy based on centuries of, 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 of philosophy, based on the Enlightenment, and yet hate our history so much? How does that happen? Well, they're perfectly happy to take the money and ignore that we have established. Australia is one of the only nations on earth that started with equality. We learned the lessons of other nations and the bloodshed that happened over thousands of years and we decided that Australia was going to be built on hope, on peace and prosperity and equality. And now, for the first time in history, we've decided to start unravelling these things and go back towards, to regress toward a race-based system. It, makes you, it does make you worry about the future for Australia, but with commentators like you, Alexandria, <laughs> I think we're in good hands. Alexandra, thanks for your time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose brilliant work you can read every day in The Spectator Australia's website, Flat White. Well, as if our federal government wasn't enough of a frightful and demanding presence in our lives already, along comes ABC Indigenous Affairs editor Bridget Brennan saying we should fear and revere it even more. Brennan was specifically referring to the proposed Indigenous Voice to Parliament, which had been sold to us during the federal election campaign and by Labor as a benign but inevitable addition to our constitution. The television advertisement promoting it was suitably humble in its proposal, saying all it wanted was a, quote, referendum for constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. Well, I thought as citizens they had this already. As Jacinta Nampajinpa Price explained on this show last night, there are some rather more pressing issues facing Indigenous Australian communities right now, such as the despair and depression caused by the almost complete absence of work and education and the ensuing family breakdowns and domestic violence. The voice will solve absolutely none of this. So what should ordinary Australians fear or revere about the voice? Let's ask Australia's most deadpan commentator, Tim Blair of the Sydney Telegraph. Tim, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Now, mate, let's start with a quick observation about the Australian sense of humour. Tony Abbott once observed that the laconic aspect of Australian culture didn't come from the convicts or sailors who disembarked from the First Fleet, but from our Indigenous brothers and sisters who needed a certain stoic humour to survive the various interactions with their new neighbours. Now, I think there's much in what Mr Abbott says here. Tim, we are constantly being asked to apologise for this and give constitutional recognition to that but would it be a bigger step forward if we instead formally acknowledged that the stoicism of the original Australians has made a valuable and unique contribution to our collective culture? Look, absolutely. And I think we shouldn't overlook in this that the longest running practical joke in Australian history was launched by an Aboriginal Australian. Ernie Dingo 
devised the Welcome to Country Ceremony, just as a time filler, really, when he was hosting an event in Perth, I think for either visiting uh, Pacific Islanders or, or uh, Maori New Zealanders, just needed to fill in a bit of time. So we came up with this Welcome to Country thing. Now, it's brilliant. Like, for the next several decades on, Whitey has been dutifully reciting those words. I mean, they, they really owe Ernie some... Um, Quite, quite besides the debt of gratitude that they owe him for, uh, for giving, um, giving these guys a way to uh, take the knee without taking the knee. They owe him royalties. <laughs> he should be putting in a claim. It's a, it's a fantastic, like I say, the longest running gag in Australian history. Good on you, Ernie. Well, in a country as funny as Australia, the, the claim to longest running gag is, is no small one at all, Tim. So full credit to Ernie, mate. Okay, so let's, let's discuss what ABC Indigenous Affairs editor Bridget Brennan said about us fearing and revering the voice to parliament. Tim, what could possibly be more divisive than telling one group of Australians they should be afraid of another group's voice? It's an extraordinary statement. I've heard a few people say that, look, maybe she simply misspoke. Well, she's been uh, on television for decades. Um, you know, she was an ABC foreign correspondent and she's the head of ABC's Indigenous Affairs. She's very comfortable with a live mic and a live camera. So I don't think misspeaking is uh, going to get you off that hook. As well, when you come up with a, with a rhyming structure like that, it sounds very planned or rehearsed. So, no, nah, that was a deliberate line. Now, think about organisations or entities that are feared and revered. It's very rare that the same entity is feared and revered at the same time, besides perhaps the almighty. Now, the Stasi might have been revered by the communists you know, who, in government because they did their work. They, uh, they crushed the population. But they, they were feared by everybody else. So you never have a feared and revered uh, uh, duality, to use an ABC word, uh, across communities. It's, it's one or the other. So you know, pick one, uh, Bridget, and see. How, just run with that. <laughs> well, Australians are notoriously conservative with referendums, Tim. Anthony Albanese is assuming he has pretty well overwhelming support over this one. Do you think this referendum will get up? If he did have overwhelming support, it's been eroded a little bit in the last few days, certainly. You know, it's a, if not by the feared and revered line, by the antics of a certain Green senator in Parliament uh, taking the oath and referring to the Queen as a coloniser, and also doing it in a tone of voice that suggested a stroppy 13-year-old girl being asked to apologise for, uh, I don't know, nicking someone's lunch at school. It's... Uh, uh, I say let the activists talk a bit more and, and see what happens with it. I think, uh, I think it's descending as we speak, if there is any support. Well, let's change the subject again. Tim, you wrote brilliantly about the refugee situation in The Telegraph this week. This is an issue that is moving quicker than a lot of people uh, probably realise. The boats have started returning to Australia since Labor resumed office in Canberra, although none have got through yet. Tim, what are the odds that Labor will go soft on this and what can we learn from what's going on in the United States at the moment? The real challenge will come when 
a boat or two does actually make it through if someone makes it to the mainland or to um, any Australian territory, and then we'll have to deal with it. And at that point, the uh, I guess you'd call it the refugee compassion industry is going to fire right back up and will be basically where we were throughout the Rudd-Gillard years. You know, they're, they're human beings. It's a legal right to seek asylum and so on. You'll hear all the same crap. What's always interesting about this is the, the people who are, many of the people who are most compassionate towards refugees never have to deal with the refugee issue in in the, the three-dimensional world. It's, it re, if it remains theoretical, they're all in favour of it. They don't have to deal with, for example, uh, issues of uh, uh, violence or, or unemployment or uh, destruction of property, which we've seen a lot in Melbourne's West, where there's large immigrant populations uh, and refugee populations. So for them, in their comfy suburbs, you know, all people are great, all people are lovely. They're never going to face the impact of what they're talking about. Now, we have the same situation in the US where Washington, D.C., 3,000 kilometres from the, the border, of, of the Mexican border, where all the problems are, D.C. calls itself a sanctuary city and they say all these lovely things about how they'll welcome refugees and all this sort of stuff. But the odds of a whole bunch of refugees ever getting there, not great. So the governments of Texas and Arizona, which border Mexico, thought they'd uh, help out a little. And uh, they put about 4,000, 4,500 uh, border crosses onto buses and sent them to Washington, D.C. Now, D.C. went berserk. There was no, you know, all this stuff about inclusivity and diversity, out the window, gone, history. Instead, oh, my God, all our homeless shelters are overwhelmed. This is a, this is a crisis. They're using the word crisis. And um, the mayor of D.C., who didn't, call for the National Guard when Washington was burning during the um, the year of mostly peaceful demonstrations <laughs> in 2020. She's calling for the National Guard. And we're only talking about 4,000 of these people. I think it's two and a half, three million in total have made the border crossing or attempted to in the last two years. And they're arriving in little, you know, Texan and Arizona border towns. Apparently, they should be able to cope with it. You know, just, you know, just be nice to the, your new arrivals. But well, well, speaking Washington, of... Washington can't cope with a lot of things, Tim. Um, let's talk about <laughs> COVID vaccines now. You made a very facetious prediction that there might one day be a class action against governments and Big Pharma when people's fingers fell off as a result of the vaccine. Now, tell me, Tim, has that prediction turned out tragically and sadly to be truer than you expected? Yeah, well, this was just a little throwaway line. I'm like, you know, here's a really good reason to get vaccinated. You know, you don't want to miss out on the action. You know, the class action suit, the world's largest, you know, when in a few years everyone's fingers start falling off. Well, last week, there's this tragic story of a guy in the US, took his shots, did the right thing, falls unconscious a couple of weeks later. They find him uh, in his apartment. They take him to hospital. He's now in a coma. And... Um, when he does eventually wake up, they've chopped eight of his fingers off because of blood clots, so which is awful. And um, let's just add the kicker. This is the guy's profession. He's a guitarist. So, you know, it's uh, adding, adding another level of horror to this, uh, this story. But, yeah, well, let's just say that maybe his fingers didn't exactly fall off, but 
it doesn't make any difference if you don't have the damn things anymore, does it? A lot of the a lot of the dire predictions about these vaccines seem to be coming uh, slightly true now. Talking about the vaccines, when Albanese, Anthony Albanese first got into office, one of the first things he said was, quote, the pandemic is not over. Tim, are you getting the feeling that ordinary Australians have stopped thinking this pandemic is anything worth worrying about? I think there's a large slab of us who are, who are over it, but there is a, I guess, a, a resilient Karen community who are not going to let it go. And uh, I've noticed just around where I live in the Central Coast that mask wearing is up a little bit. Um, interestingly, I, like, I remember when um, when masks were sort of officially, you know, you were allowed to give the masks a miss. And there was there were predictions from some quarters, the left-wing quarters, that the unmasked will be bullying the masked, which um, I've never noticed that happening. But it, it, it used to... It was always the other way anyway. It was the mask, mask screaming at the unmasked, you know, unclean, unclean, as if it made the difference to them. You know, the, the mask is, uh, we'll talk about this a bit later as well, but the, the mask is a devotional symbol. We know they don't work. You know, we've, read the, we've read the studies. We know about this stuff. So um, I think it's largely a, a bit of performance art at this point. Tim, there's talk again that taxation is going to affect the price of beer. Uh, mm. What do you think of $10 schooners and what can the government do to uh, avoid this, the, the awful headlines that will ens uh, ensue if this happens? Well, there was a government plan under Morrison to um, reduce the tax on beer uh, at the tap. It was specifically to get people out and into pubs again and you know, reviving the economy and so on. And it's been reversed, obviously, and now we're looking at 10, 10 bucks schooners. But it's like, remember the 70s? Or maybe you don't, but I certainly do. But um, uh, every, there was an annual headline in, uh, in, the, in the Herald Sun in Melbourne or the Sun News Victorial, as it was then, beer cigs up. I think it was like a permanent sort of layout they had. They just dug it out every every year. And we're, we're all truly back in the beer cigs up era, which is just great. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for your time, Tim. Uh, it's always a pleasure have, to have you on the show. Not a problem, mate, any time. That's Daily Telegraph columnist Tim Blair with the sort of observation you normally only hear in front bars and footy clubs. Now, before I go, it was reported in The Weekend Australian that inflation will be the ultimate test of this new Labor government. Paul Kelly wrote, quote, the inflation challenge will make or break the Albanese government along with Jim Chalmers as treasurer. And the reputation of Labor as a governing entity is at stake along with this generation of Labor politicians. Chalmers himself said that Australians won't, quote, wish away the warning signs. Well, the warning signs were flashing amber yellow yesterday when it was reported that schooners of beer might soon hit the $10 milestone. The cause of this dramatic rise was taxation, according to the Brewers Association of Australia. CEO John Preston was quoted saying there had been 20 increases in taxation on beer in the past decade and that taxation on Australian beer is among the highest in the world. 
This should, this should be the sort of thing that Albo, who reportedly likes a beer himself, can identify with. But budgetary pressures are difficult to balance in these complex times. It's been a long time since the primary objective of the federal treasurer was to avoid the infamous headline, beer sigs up in budget shocker. Compounding the problem is that the venues being hit by these beer taxes were among the hardest hit by the COVID lockdowns. Chalmers is not promising anything. He said, quote, there are lots of other pressures on the budget and it's not possible to fund every one of them. Well, we keep saying it over and over here on ADH TV, but the government simply needs to start building coal-fired power plants, if not nuclear ones. This will produce cheaper energy and take the pressure off businesses to do all sorts of things, including keeping beers cold at the pub. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to work that out. You just need to appreciate a cold lager. Surely even Albo can understand that. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thank you so much for your company. And again, tell your friends to download the ADH TV app on their phones and televisions, where all our rapidly expanding content is available live and on demand. And I'll see you tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Good night.